Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. I'm hearing considerably fewer syllables than normal out of you. I know the chair can be intimidating. You okay? (sighs) Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek. For episode 203, Point of Light comes to you now via genetically synthesized severed Klingon infant head. Ooh, yes, one of the more uh, shocking things that we've seen in Star Trek of late, but certainly glad to be talking the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery. Pete, a bit of news from the fleet just before we launch into the episode. First, an update on the most important thing we've ever discussed, or at least discussed in the last month. I'm talking about the number of decks on Discovery. There's a Reddit thread that theorizes that there are 18 decks total. There's a link to that post in the podcast description. The picture works for me. Reddit is a tremendous resource. Uh, recently been using that to further publicize our podcast. And on that note, everybody listening, anytime you could share or uh, refer to us, always helpful. But yeah, uh, love Reddit, love the Star Trek Discovery Reddit thread. Shout out. Uh, continuing with the news here, some of the disco cast was on Carpool Karaoke, the show on apple or something so someone let us know how that was i have seen at least two of the clips and really really awesome to see the synthesis of our actors here in particular doug jones who out of prosthetics is even more watchable Last bit of news here, Pete. Discovery was represented at the Television Critics Association press tour, the twice-a-year time when TV makers bow before those critical gods. Kurtzman and cast members represented the show with uh, Kurtzman talking vague plans for season three. The show's not officially uh, renewed yet. Uh, CBS executive Julie uh, McNamara spoke about, quote, taking a measured approach to developing and releasing shows in this universe, close quote. As CBS rushes to make more of everything Star Trek before potentially the all-access bubble pops. A couple thoughts there. If a measured approach is ready, Picard, the Georgiou spinoff, um, a, uh, the Lower Decks animated show um, announced right before the two of those. Yep, and more <laughs> short treks, which they count as a different show, which is... Uh, whatever. Oh, and uh, not to mention that uh, Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz, who executive uh, produce The Runaways, another podcast by Fantastic Geek, uh, also have a Star uh, Trek Starfleet um, Academy show in development. So if that's measured, I hate to see what, you know, completely out of control would be on all access, Matt. I feel like we keep coming back to this, but only because it keeps happening. Um, you attempted to watch the show via Fire Stick, as you've done before, and it was there. Uh, but Peekaboo, you could not actually watch it. Uh, I'm watching it on my laptop, and you're behind. 
Uh, I get a push notification the week before. I still don't know how to my iPhone because nowhere have I signed up for that. Uh, that at 8.02, the episode was watchable. This week it came through at 10.10 p.m. And I have screenshots on Twitter to prove both with the dates. Um, this two hours after I had watched it, it was available before 8.30. That I don't want to chide CBS All Access from because the sooner we can get our hands on it, the better. But um, maybe in addition to the development in a measured way and releasing them for these shows, perhaps we can get the apparatus that releases them uh, under control or just have that bubble pop and give it all to Netflix. <laughs> I'm sure from a technical point of view, there's all sorts of difficult things to make it happen and just in terms of having a streaming service but here's the flip side i don't have this problem with netflix or hulu or youtube not that i watch the original pro programming on youtube but anytime or i want to watch a video or showtime or cinemax or epics or stars I, yeah i have all these streaming services matt and cbs is the only one where it's an issue. So please reinvest some of the fantastic geek money or all the other subscribers money and please get the beeps and the boops under control because that this wonderful TV show and what I'm sure is going to be compelling content released in a measured way uh, coming forward Please make it easy for people to pay you money for it through what is right now your garbage system. It is prime universe programming with mirror universe infrastructure. Uh, I will say this, Pete. I, I've been to the future. Just while you were talking, uh, I, I've been to the future with uh, you know the whole time core that visited uh, Jonathan Archer, etc. This measured approach is wait for it. It's going to be 13, 14 weeks of discovery. Not, not, not 2019, just in the future, in 2020. We've still never definitively had that confirmed, and I am so anticipating the rug being beamed out from under us on the mid-season finale, season or episode uh, seven of season two in a couple weeks. And I pray to Kalish and others that does not happen. Well, I think the plan, let's say for 2020, is 14 weeks nonstop of discovery. I should say preceded with some incremental short trek stuff. It'll be 14 weeks of discovery, then a couple weeks of short treks, then the entire, then 10 episodes over 10 weeks of lower decks. Uh, then the next week, you know, whatever, 10 episodes of Picard, like the measured approach is going to be all Star Trek all the time, which I'm okay with. Um, I am a little nervous, Pete. If Picard comes out at the end of this calendar year, we have some other as of yet unannounced things we're looking at at the end of 2019 uh, in terms of podcasting, but that'll be just a, a, uh, a galaxy of riches, if you will. But yeah, that's going to be their measured approach. And hopefully it's all really, really compelling. Listen, fantastic geek. Can't be overwhelmed, Matt. We tied an all-time high in January of 2019 with 21 podcasts released in 31 days. Uh, you can't stop us. Um, one other note here with all of this content, and, and let's hope that 
nonstop Star Trek content on CBS All Access will not be foiled by CBS All Access itself from a technical standpoint. But there is a concerted effort, um, whether it's because of the network, whether it's because of the content, whether it's because of the tiny brains behind the concerted efforts to spread misinformation that Star Trek Discovery has already informally been canceled behind the scenes and that this is all damage control that goes back to a couple of YouTubers. Are you serious? Like the, the, I'm we, 100 we, we prep some stuff for the podcast. I had no idea about this. Please go on. Listen, Matt, there's a reason that old spoiler Pete uh, was given a black badge um, and you have the engineering badge. Uh, I can tell you this is 100 percent the truth um, that this is going on. And I'm not going to name the uh, YouTubers or accounts because it is nonsense it is not true, and whatever grudge they have, they are attempting um, with some effectivity, Matt, to enact. So we have Fantastic Geek, who are always going to shoot it down the middle, but we are fans of this show. Uh, we are definitely fans of the creative team behind the show and what they are producing on a weekly basis. And here to tell you that... What is being spread on social media is absolute hogwash. I am shocked, particularly because whatever else you might say about CBS All Access, whatever else you might say, even if you're not a Discovery fan, and if you're still listening at this point, almost 10 minutes in, this might not be the podcast for you. But even if you're not into Discovery, I mean, what further proof do you need that it worked? In however you want to do the numbers, because it's Netflix subsidized, because whatever, thumbs up or thumbs down, it got the second season, and they want to make more things like it. Um, though I do have long-term concerns about the viability of All Access just being a Star Trek, you know, thing versus everything else. What was number one? I know the good white good fight preceded yes. it, but what's the been the big push to All Access? Star Trek Discovery, right? What and do I they think want to make more of? Balanced yeah. out in that we're going to get um, Jordan Peele's um, Twilight Zone now announced for uh, April 1. So, you know, more is coming. Again, where do they need to uh, clear it up? We know where they do, technically, not in terms of content, although there could certainly be content. You know, I've said for years and years and years, we needed a Star Trek network. And, you know, what was Netflix? You had all the shows. Um, yes, all the shows are available on CBS all access, but some people don't seem to remember they pay for Netflix. Therefore they should pay for other networks. Well, <laughs> worldwide, the price of Netflix is going up and I have to wonder if maybe the price of all access will come down at some point, just relative to what, what they have on there. But the flip side is again, there's a reason why. They have more Star Trek coming. It's because people subscribe for Star Trek and unsubscribe for not Star Trek. So let's remember too the text I sent you midweek where uh, the season two premiere is now available on YouTube. And as I understand that now, that's a limited time thing. So I have watched it on my 60 inch screen through YouTube. 
Um, and I would invite other people to do the same and to share it. I wonder whether that, I, I guess at the end of the day, they're trying to get news out about the show, which is good. I think there's potentially a pessimistic take, which is, you know, red alert, maximum signal to whoever can hear us, please watch this show. I, I somehow doubt that's the case, but certainly it's novel, if nothing else. But now for our mission briefing. Stardate 1029.46, the personal log of Commander Michael Burnham talks about the seven red signals, Matt, as we see what eventually we will know to be, and through the trailers and such that Matt doesn't watch, uh, Sarek's ship flying through the galaxy. But Burnham still lacks a rational explanation that will explain the signals and any hope of uh, saving her relationship with her brother Spock. Yeah, she feels like she's a failure, unable to help him. Uh, also, everybody caught up. We had a little Seven Signals recap, Brother Spock recap, He's in Trouble recap. Uh, the story moves to the lights fluttering, as one does when running a half marathon on a starship. It's Tilly who's running it. She sees May, who seems to kindly taunt her. Uh, both the camera and Tilly's perspective wobble in and out of focus. And uh, Tilly says that she sees May as a symptom of an unfit mind. Tilly, clad in the new Discovery Gold CTP shirts, also available for you now on sale, Matt, on StarTrek.com. But Silly Stilly here, uh, urged on by May because anyone who's ever run a um, uh, a trainee half marathon never, ever brings it up by the way pete i was all set to say oh you're just being sarcastic about the the swag because no way star trek has its stuff together enough no no top banner when you click on shop.startrek.com it's the disco ctp collection pete the men's shirt the women's shirt the mug and the hat so good on you there by the way pete i see black badges cannot be ordered at this time uh again you know uh, all the more special, Matt. That's why people listen here to get that inside take. So uh, Tilly gets running again here. Uh, we'll have to talk about why the lights are down during a uh, trainee half marathon. Is this in case they need to run in the dark? I, I don't know. Um, and that she finishes ahead of everybody else. Saru tells her that not only has she won, uh, but communicates to Burnham that she sets a personal best. Indeed, Pete. Saru being this uh, great mentor, not just to Tilly, uh, but to the other uh, the other command training program uh, trainees. Um, I guess we could have get a trainees to the briefing room uh, line, but that would have stolen from Star Trek II. Anyhow, uh, May returns briefly, and as Burnham shows up to to root on Tilly, uh, Burnham says that uh, Tilly is amazing. Uh, obviously, some tension here with May setting up what's to come in the episode. Uh, on the bridge, though, it's all business. Uh, Saru, or Saru, and Burnham uh, get called to the bridge. It's yellow alert. There's an unidentified craft coming in. Really smart camera move here. We get Everybody in the bridge crew saying their stuff and their things. We get the 
informal owo from Pike. Uh, Pike is ready to set weapons, but he's told uh, by Bryce, I believe it is, that the ship has a diplomatic registry. It doesn't need to share more. But Pete, it's that Vulcan ship, you know, that one from the beginning of the episode. It is, which Saru identifies um, as Vulcan, and Burnham says that it's Sarek, uh, that they had assembled a Federation task force to study the signals. Pike shares a private moment with Burnham here that he may have heard through ambassadorial channels that um, Spock has been uh, committed of his own volition at Starbase 5 for psychiatric evaluation. He worries that it's a betrayal of his friend, but Burnham uh, tells him to take heart since he followed protocol and he sends her to the transporter room to receive the ambassador. Yes, that transporter room, by the way, on deck four. So for all you engineers out there, that's that's where the the saucer really starts to thicken up there. But back to, you know, important story things. Surprise, surprise, beaming down is actually Amanda, who promptly steps off the, uh, the platform there and hugs her adoptive daughter, saying that Spock needs her help. We cut to the credits, which show Shazad Latif credited. And special guest star, Michelle Yeoh, I in no way would have known she was in the episode, which has the teaser text on the website, like, a secret person does secret things, <laughs> and then there's a picture of international icon Michelle Yeoh there. Um, I won't even get into how she was shown in the preview in the summer, because, okay, fair is fair. But, Pete, the fluid nature of credits, that means it's a surprise each week to find out who's in what. This, an episode written by Andrew Colville. And directed by Olatunde Ansudsami. This also an episode featuring Mary Chifo's Chancellor Laurel, which brings us out of the title card there. Out of the fire of war, life begins anew. And as the Klingon Chancellor here, the dynasty springs from her. And we have the offspring. They're, they're really foreshadowing, Matt, what is to happen in this episode uh, as the uh, torchbearer uh, once Voke now Tyler introduces the chambers to the D seven, the future battle cruiser of the Imperial fleet that bears no banner of a single house, but instead of a united empire. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, I don't want to, Retcon isn't quite the right word. It's like a pre-con. I don't quite know, but it's a fun little moment to be putting these things together. Probably there's a whole tangent to be made of, look, he or the two of them are introducing a more uh, streamlined, less ornamental type of ship. That's why the D7 looks like it was made out of two by fours and, and uh, you know, like uh, plastic pipes in the 1960s and why the stuff from, uh, you know, episode 101 looked like it was made on a computer by computer people. Um, but it's a fun, it's a fun moment and it, and it connects together these pieces. Yes. And suddenly we have a familiar voice, Matt, from a familiar family. That's Kolsha of House Core criticizing uh, Laurel Will the torchbearer be the new fleet captain as well? Will we speak the standard tongue all the time? 
But uh, she chides him, reminding them that the torchbearer was anointed by Tukuvma himself. She is corrected, however, by Kolsha that Valk was and Matt that playthings belong in her bed and not there. Wow. Not only wow, I suspect later in the episode, uh, some of the non-subtitled Klingon probably is about as filthy as you can get. Oh, uh, it's, to my ears, it was, if somebody can get us what was said in Klingon during the confrontation between uh, Laurel, um, Tyler, and Kolsha that was left out, please please let us know what was said. And I hope it's as filthy as possible. <laughs> I, I hope there are references to Targs and uh, yeah. Uh, Cole Shaw, of course, played by actor Kenneth Mitchell, who had played Cole. So, you know, just this great, this great thing here. I, Pete, I was under the impression from the summer that he was playing a different character. Maybe he had the name wrong. Maybe it was a fake name. Maybe he's going to show up later, but regardless I think that there should be a tradition, whether it's once a season or more, you should get <laughs> Kenneth Mitchell back in as many different roles. I, to me, it's just, it's, it makes sense here, but to be like, oh, season three, he's the whatever, he's the blob face guy. Like it, it, it could just be a fun little, you know, Alfred Hitchcock cameo kind of thing. I, can I give you notes on your suggestion? Sure. It needs to constantly be a member of house core, uh, male, female non-gendered just constantly showing up you know kenneth mitchell in a, in a wig which could be male or female uh but yeah just keep this tradition going i want him to essentially play every member of that house we ever see i'm reminded of in deep space nine obviously everybody knows morn and in the episode where morn is presumed dead at his funeral the guy who plays morn was there out of makeup sitting at the bar in Morin's spot at the at, at the barside funeral. But Pete, back to this show, uh, Coleshaw making it clear that if uh, the torchbearer doesn't like this, he can A, sit on it. Also, Coleshaw blames these seven drops of blood, the seven lights, on the Chancellor. And a little kind of Game of Thrones moment there, Pete, blaming the red thing in the sky on different things from different perspectives. And how about the red things on his face, Matt? Remove them! Yes, uh, he, Tyler, goes to, uh, to Coleshaw to wipe that paint off, um, just, just tear that red hat, red paint off his head. Uh, it's the job of the torchbearer to get his hands dirty. Yes, as we will later learn, swimming in sensor implants, a premeditated move by Kolsha of House Core. Uh, back on Discovery, Burnham updates Amanda, including that Spock knew about the lights before it appeared. Burnham says that she's out of angles, but Amanda has a new angle. That's like perfect timing. Uh, they wouldn't say what was wrong with him or give her any information. Even she, the mother, the wife of a diplomat. But Amanda has a logical outgrowth of that. She has stolen Spock's encrypted medical file. New mission of the next couple scenes. Please decrypt it. I thought it was a tremendously effective action here. Um, really like what we get out of Amanda actress Mia Kirshner. Yeah, she's fantastic. And you think of 
you think of how little she was actually in the first season, but how old, and I don't mean in terms of age on screen, but how, how familiar she feels, this actress, this role, this age, this show. You know, it's like, welcome back, old friend, who was in like two, maybe three episodes, but we go from the Discovery Pete back to the Klingons. Uncle Ujili is looking well, but he's ignoring Tyler. Uh, he continues to be looked down upon by the Klingon leadership, Tyler does. And Laurel says that uh, Ujili is definitely pro-Chancellor. Uh, then Pete, just in case you didn't watch the previously on Star Trek Discovery or you've never seen this show... Shazad Latif goes through like 20 seconds of just recapping everybody, including you at home, the transformative past of Vogue to Tyler, just in case you couldn't keep track of this show that makes things difficult to keep track of by having all the episodes online and having a previously on Star Trek at the top of the episode. And it's a pet peeve of mine when any show gives you a previously on and covers something. And then within the episode, they have exposition that covers that just so the dum-dums know what's what. I can definitely see your point, but as somebody who has written as of yet unproduced uh, TV, the need to recap expositionally within the body of the program much like being a journalist, you have no control of a headline or something that would come outside of the story. These creatives don't really organize the promotional efforts um, to the point where things can be spoiled, things can be let out ahead of time um, and not uh, really done on their watch. So, Like the preview I, for Star Trek 3? Like what? The, the ship is gone? Yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I can I can definitely see that. I appreciated it. But more so, Matt, can we just take a minute? I don't think we do this enough to praise Gersha Phillips and the costume design. Um, I know we've already ordered our uh, Starfleet command training program disco shirts. Uh, I got a shipping notice while we've been podcasting here. I want to be able to order my uh, Tyler um, Kronos half cape there so that you and I, when we get into a slow motion Batleth fight uh, between episodes, can look awesome. Um, the only disappointment I have is that a quick Google search reveals that a half cape is officially known as a half cape and not something kind of Britishy like <laughs> like a hock up. Or, you know, a hot cape or something like that. The Klingon but, word is nigh unpronounceable. <laughs> um, but you're right. The, the the look of the costume there, it's absolutely fantastic. The leather, I mean, obviously Klingons and leather, that's the direction you have to go is Gersha Phillips. But just the way it drapes off him, it looks alien. It looks familiar. It looks old-fashioned. It looks new. It's It's every box that needs to be checked there. And the tiara, let's not leave this out on um, on Laurel, the uh, the plunging neckline, uh, now Klingons with hair, the whole thing there. And the and the design now that our Klingons are, are using, um, you know, stimulating their hair follicles again outside of war, uh, really interesting to look at. And for the the traditionalist, Matt. Uh, you know, they of the hashtag my Klingons have hair movement. Um, okay. 
yeah, surprise, surprise, the Klingons have hair again. Uh, we have the line a little bit later on, oh, the Klingons are regrowing their hair now that the war is over. The rumors he... true. They're true, Matt. I'm not going to point out that when we first saw the representative of the houses talk to Dakovma before the war began, none of them had hair. Um, because I'm sure that can be explained too. But who cares? It's It's nice to see them with hair. And Pete... Earlier in that, uh, when, when we first enter kind of the throne room, some of the some of the facial hair that they have, you know, it's full on mutton chops. There's a guy who has the, the lousy Fu Manchu. Yes, uh, it mustache. looks like uh, General Chang from Star Trek Six. Ooh, ooh, now that would be fun. That there's there's many fun directions that there could go yes. uh, w- with that. But um. Taking it back squarely to the episode here, uh, Tyler says that he wants to be treated like Vok to be spoken to in Klingon. Uh, She kisses him, Pete. She says that she just wants to be wanted. Um, But uh, he responds that her touches feel like a violation to him, which uh, I think is a a very kind of appropriate, not not just because of his past, but I think that that's a smart way to kind of take that to to not cheapen the trauma that he went through in the first season. Not only that, I think very real basis for the character of Valk slash Tyler is the idea of gender fluidity here with his uh, fluid identity. Um, and it's been handled really delicately and very intelligently. As a viewer, I've really appreciated it. I think that's a great observation there, and it's one of those things where if if that's not the discussion that that the, that a particular viewer wants to have, then it's just a guy in a, the space show where they did space medicine to make him look like the kind of thing he's not. Um, but then right there beneath the surface, there is a metaphor for I, the fluidity of identity, whether it's uh, gender or, or orientation or whatever whatever particular venue uh, suits the discussion. Um, and uh, until we get it from Tyler, who at the end of the episode had me wondering how much more Tyler will we get, but we'll get there at the end. Uh, let's head back to discovery. Amanda has a sit down with Pike and Burnham. Uh, Pike cannot open those files. That's against the rules. And Pike's mother wouldn't like that. <laughs> it's he, a great line. <laughs> it's a fantastic line. Uh, Pike, even more of a boy scout than James Kirk is reputed to be wherever that scallywag is in the galaxy right now, probably getting ready to head into um, the Academy, if not a little younger, but um, they call over to Starbase five or Bryce does to get captain Diego Vela uh, high priority on the tube which only Pike and uh, Vela's grandmother are using. Uh, they, the last in the quadrant, to be communicating on screens. I wonder if when they have moments like that, if it is a cost-saving thing. I know, Pete, way back in the distant past, back when Aaron Harberts was still the co-showrunner, all those ages ago, um there had been a scene towards the end of the first season where all of a sudden uh, somebody got somebody on the horn and it wasn't holograph. It was screen to screen. And I said, Ooh, is that a pickup shot? 
because I suspected it was. And he actually responded to me on Twitter and said, uh, no, we wanted to show the different ways, which I still don't believe. I think it was like, hey, we need a scene where we get uh, get the Admiral saying, do this, don't do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Well, no more, no more Star Trek for him and his writing partner. <laughs> uh, that's true. It's, it's, it's... <laughs> We hope that our Star Trek runs like Pike's Bridge, but instead, Pete, it runs like Laurel's Throne Room. I was but... just going to say, it's, it's <laughs> the Klingon Empire. Uh, no no word on how many uh, albino infants have been decapitated. Well, to be fair, in this episode, the actual number is zero, but I digress. Uh, back to Vela, Pete. Captain Vela, to you and me. He can't share anything, even though Pike is A, on a mission that Spock is connected to, and B, uh, Spock's commanding officer. Uh, the key issue is just total side note, just really minor issue. Spock has killed three doctors, and his files are missing, so that might be complicating things. And he's fled. <laughs> and he's fled. Luckily, there are people on the case wink wink yeah we'll we'll talk about those people later matt because there's one more of those people now uh amanda of course says this is not true burnham agrees three of them when you throw in pike here um and as they uh uh end the conversation pike orders matt orders burnham to crack the files which after uh what people who don't pay for the uh uh no commercial uh package uh watched um a commercial again uh we hear from a doctor on the screen there that lieutenant spock's uh Intellectual abilities and capacity for reason are intact. His dissociation, however, appears acutely emotional. EQ tests um, and his disaffected state suggest an extreme empathy deficit. Now, Pete, I'm no psychologist, but I think that what you want is an empathy surplus, not an empathy deficit. So where should mother and daughter start? Burnham notes that uh, logically he is either falsely accused or guilty and confused. Uh, Amanda notes that his empathy deficit could be code for psychopathy. Pete, that's got the same root word as psychopath, suggesting that he could be off his rocker. He did not have a normal childhood, raised in the Vulcan tradition as Sarek demanded, where emotion was strongly discouraged. Um that uh, Amanda hid her own emotion as to not confuse him. Hence, she did not act like a real mother. Uh, Burnham disagrees that she gave them love every second, um, but that it was difficult. And the uh, affection that Spock might have received never really made it to him. It certainly does stop the viewer for a moment to consider uh, a Spock that we did not know, aside from the uh, the yesteryear episode, just this notion of uh, the human side of him. How inappropriate is it to not show that side any emotion? Certainly, you know, if we were to do that in in a vacuum, you know, like, had had Burnham ended up in a completely Vulcan household, I, I think that would have been similarly uh, 
borderline on emotional abuse. Um, but I like that the show digs a bit into it here. Like it's a real, I think it's a real character concern. What has that done to him? Yes. We only know him as stable for the most part and logical and, and in control and this cool character in the future. Uh, but it's, it's kind of great that the show is delving into it here. And as Burnham embraces Amanda, Amanda sees on the download screen, a number of depictions of the red angel that Spock has drawn since he was little when he first saw it. And it changed him. Now, Pete, I'm no real veteran of time travel aside from the one trip. That seems to suggest that the Red Angel was around before all this recent hootenanny, which makes things all the more interesting. Um, but that Pete. Well, what is, if the Red Angel is immune to space and time? That certainly could be. Um, but all of this peak gets interrupted by, I want to say, a triple ringtone. It sounded like a triple ringtone. <laughs> I'm wondering if maybe Burnham is using a little sense of humor it known that tribbles and Klingons don't mix. Her customizable uh, ringtone for her ex-boo. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, uh, I mean... Pete, it would never different. be a triple, right? Like maybe a clattering bat leth or the sound of bones being broken. But she knows that tribbles and Klingons don't mix. So that little triple trill there to, to, to say that there's a Klingon of sorts on the, on the holophone. I don't know. I, I don't know to what degree that was maybe scripted or done on purpose. I can't imagine it was done by accident. Um, but anyhow, Pete, it's Tyler on the holophone she decides to take it in her quarters. Her quarters that uh, later rather interestingly get split screened with Kronos. Uh, really, really well done as we have some uh, listener feedback in a little bit, Matt. But Tyler explains that the situation on Kronos is volatile, that the Federation needs to know that if Laurel falls, peace will fall too. Uh, of course, Burnham is going to pass it up the chain of command. Uh, she explains the issue right now with her foster brother and that Amanda has come and uh, unstuck her as far as progress on that mystery. Um, and Tyler wishes that she could be sent to Kronos where he is feeling similarly stuck. Uh, here's where... Burnham says she likes the beard. We get the little cannon, wink, wink, nudge, nudge there. Um, Tyler, though, Pete, he's got the ennui with helping Laurel. Um, and uh, ultimately, Burnham suggests that he has to take Laurel at her word, and uh, they hang up, or as they call it in the future, space hang up. On the bridge, Saru initiates shadow exercises for the future chiefs and captains of Starfleet to develop rapport with a senior officer. Tilly, of course, gets Pike, uh, and she is preparing to sit in the chair when, of course, May shows up. Yes, May, May wants to talk to the real captain, the man that's short and white and blonder. Um, and less funny. I can't imagine, Pete, who they're talking about <laughs> here. Oh, boy. Um, but uh, Tilly sits and mumbles to May, then yells at her. It, of course, appears that she's yelling right at Pike. The great Pike, Pete. Top five all time. At least top five all time that time. 
I wonder, side note, is Picard top five all time or is the fact that he lost oh, two ships? On. He Pete, he lost two ships in like twelve years. Totaled two ships in ten years. Only and then let's a, let's throw the Stargazer a, in there. He's a serial ship loserer. Only a serial ship loserer, Matt, would get more ships. Uh it's a reciprocal problem. All the more reason when we pick up with him, when he is no longer a Starfleet captain and president of the Federation, uh, will he uh, make it clear why he keeps getting bumped up? Because I'm not saying he's the best there's ever been, <clears throat> Kirk, but he's pretty darn good. Back on the Klingon homeworld, Tyler is rubbing his fingers. Pete, that's what they call the foreshadowing. Uh, we see someone dipping in and out of the shadows. He finds other Klingons and is told that House Mokai isn't keeping secrets from him. It's Laurel who's keeping secrets from him. Still, the uncle must share. He points to another room. The doors are open. It's a baby, the son of Laurel and Voke. Oh, my. Yeah, and what we get is the explanation from Laurel that she had learned she was pregnant as Vogue was being transformed. She could not activate him on discovery while she was carrying the child. So the gestation was uh, done ex utero. That's why the child it that she refers to him is so small. He's never been named. They have never met. The baby is a vulnerability. And Tyler, I found it very interesting, points out all this for a failed wartime mission. Pete, in season one, there was the line from Laurel to Voke, shall we uncouple? And this is a reminder that you can't rely just on uncoupling. You need to have a little bit more of a plan when it comes to planning or not those things in your life. Um as you mentioned, Pete, the surprising reveal of a secret history. I love it when shows give us the secret history that you didn't know about when you weren't looking there. Um, bottom line, though, uh, Laurel is hurt that Tyler called Burnham that particular human woman. Didn't Vogue and Laurel have that love, Pete? Can there be a new love story? Will there be love in the future? Well, on their way back to Kronos at the end of season one, Matt, Tyler looked in on one of Vogue's memories, you know, the one of that secret history when they took a walk on the ancestral cliffs of the Mokai and uh, then made sweet, sweet love down by the volcanic fire and made this albino baby. As one does. I mean... Is not the side of an active volcano the place just to get the hearts, plural, pumping? Anyhow, Pete, back to Amanda. See, what we got here is our classic A-B intercut story with a little C in there of Tilly while we're on Discovery. And then surprise, a D story at the end. Anyhow, Pete, we're back with Amanda. She explains to Burnham that when Burnham tried to run away as a girl, more secret history. It was Spock who found Burnham, who helped Sarek find her. Mother and father assumed that he was always speaking figuratively uh, about his logical way of finding her, This uh, about the, the Red Angel. But now Burnham's seen it too. Was it even real, Pete? It is, and it's not nefarious. We're going to talk uh, about this 
when we look at some theories in a little bit. Uh, but they had always written it off as figurative and that because of the danger that Spock is in making this all the more precarious, um, really interesting, Matt, what comes next, how Burnham explains to her adoptive mother that because Spock was her little shadow, we've only seen the coolness on screen at this point, eventually that thawed, she, out of fear that the logic extremists would target Spock um, as somebody younger and more vulnerable, albeit being raised in the Vulcan tradition, uh, had to wound him irreparably. And the interplay between Amanda and Burnham after this is very, very interesting and all the more heartbreaking. It is. And, you know, though I'm making a little light here of secret histories revealed, we have had it hinted at in this season already that there is this trauma uh, that, that Burnham uh, and Spock shared or Burnham gave to Spock as made more clear in this episode. Um, and it's unspeakable. It's a mystery. So obviously we have some story uh, propulsion moving forward. Uh, Burnham says that she had wanted to make amends, but has not been able to do so. And uh, Amanda with that promises to find her son takes the file. And but wait, kisses her then says, no, I will find him and leaves and though it begins with an act of kindness, it, I came back to Star Trek 2009. This is live long and prosper delivered like F you. This is I'm kissing you on the cheek and I'm going to find my son. I'm not happy with you. There is a coldness to it, uh, particularly on, on uh, repeated viewing. That's a little – it's a little shocking. It's a little um, – it raises questions, you know, to what degree is Amanda, is there a favorite child? To what degree is there Amanda being somewhat emotionally manipulative here or just genuine or is it, you know, angered? There's a whole lot going on for Mia Kirshner who appears in like three scenes and doesn't have a ton of dialogue in this episode. It's a lot that's given to her nonetheless. Back on Kronos here, uh, Laurel is worried the baby's not going to know her. But then again, the baby didn't know Tyler until he met it. And as they open the door, Matt, of course, Uncle Eugili is hanging dead from the ceiling. And the hologram of Kolsha appears with the baby that needed some color, now tattooed, although I'm sure his tattoos are not swimming in sensor implant listening devices that were planted so that we could overhear strategy and instead know about the secret backstory, love child. Well, first of all, Pete, let me correct you at least as best as I understand. I don't know that it is. I don't know that any of them have tattoos. I think it's more paint. But uh, regardless, did I say just, tattoo. You did say tattoo, Pete. The deal proposed by Colshaw exchanged the baby for control of the empire. Astonished gasp. Yeah, that the High Council would be complicit with kidnapping uh, rather than harboring a spy and that he's going to wrest control 
um, with this evidence, and they will meet him at her residence to make the swap, Matt. So let's go back to Tilly and Burnham in their quarters. Uh, you mean cut away from one storyline at a moment of <laughs> dramatic height in order to uh, leave us enthralled as we go somewhere else? Uh, on Discovery, Tilly returns to her quarters, which let's not forget she shares with Burnham, though we have not seen it uh, in nigh many an episode. Uh, including Pete in that uh, Tilly short track. It's almost like they didn't have uh, Sonika Martin-Green available for that. Um, but here they are back in their quarters. Uh, love the little detail that Burnham has been recently crying. We see it almost better than Tilly. Uh, she asks about it. That's not even the focus of the scene. It's just, it's logical, Pete. Um, the, the latter of the two, that being Burnham, needs a problem that she can solve. Uh, we then get May there suggesting that Tilly should say nothing. And Pete, that's when Tilly admits that she is seeing a g -g -g ghost. I want to praise the makeup for Tilly throughout this episode as well. Um, particularly the scene on the bridge. She looks gaunt. She looks haggard in a way. When she was running before, it was believable. She's winded. But she truly looks at the end of her rope here. And given that we're about to throw her the lifeline that is Burnham's brain to solve this problem, uh, that, that she looks better already. Um, but she explains about the mystery of May, how uh, you know she got hit with the dark matter. And ever since, she's been seeing this girl that no one else can see that she knew as a teenager and died uh, several years ago. But as she's telling her this, uh, May wants to know why Tilly's eyes are dripping, and she explains that's crying, which apparently this entity does not know. And xenoanthropologist Burnham whips into action here. It can't be a ghost because uh, this would be pulled from her subconscious. You know what crying is. It would know what crying is. So this is something else. Yes. And I like that little bit of xenoanthropological tic-tac-toe. Uh, just really cutting through with, with scant evidence there, cutting through to what it is. Um, another bit of evidence there, Burnham wasn't zapped. Uh, when holding the asteroid. So perhaps Pete, instead of needing a doctor, Tilly needs Stamets. Oh man, Pete, now that I'm so emotionally caught up with this story and hooked in, take us back to the Chancellor's residence there on Kronos. The exchange set up here, Matt Colshaw wants the Federation puppet to sign the proclamation handing over control of the Empire uh, before... They kill uh, Tyler, but uh, Laurel ain't having it. And she says that you better kill us both because the one left standing will be the one that returns for him. And then there's a great partially slow motion fight, Matt, with pink blood splatter <gasps> everywhere, which is not only canonical, Matt, and the, the people that everything needs to be the same, regardless of 50 years of television uh, are satisfied, but it's, it's just really great to watch. I think it is really good to watch. I think the fight is 
quite good. I would not quite call it great. Uh, fun use of slow motion there. Uh, I think too, as we've seen in in other episodes and and in other shows, sometimes that use of slow motion lets you keep the actor on camera and you know do a cool thing. And even though they're not a stunt person or they're not you know hitting with full force or whatever it is, you throw some slow motion in there and it looks a little bit more um, looks a bit more authentic. Plus, you get to see their face. Um, plenty of blood gets spilled, though. Uh, Pete Tyler, he's a boss. His chest stab barely slows him. Uh, left though is Lorel, Tyler, Colshaw, and two lackeys. Pete, it's the showdown within the showdown. Yes, and then he uses his Darth Maul, uh, dual ended device to paralyze both of them and tells Lorel that before she suffocates here. Um, we're going to use the blood from the Shulman to, uh, who's actually really a Klingon who should have pink blood, but he's got red blood on her pink blooded pinky to sign off on the exchange. And then some thunder starts to crackle. That's uh, Pete. I believe that's called pathetic fallacy when, uh, the weather reflects the emotions going on here. Um, she indeed does give that. I mean, it's official in that the computer goes beep, beep and accepts her transfer of power. Um, then Peter zapping a masked mystery person arrives, kills the goons with a floating drone thing. Uh, then this mystery person and bubbles Colshaw, my Google docs spell check didn't think i was serious when i said in bubbling <laughs> oh it in bubbles colshaw uh laurel stabs colshaw nay pete opens all colshaw up and then there's the reveal that in no way was shown this summer and therefore took a little energy out of the episode when the mystery alien removes her hood d holographizes and it's georgiou Emperor, Matt? No, you have me confused with someone else. I'm Philippa Georgiou, retired captain of the USS Shenzhou, now Starfleet security consultant. Um, which is also a little reminder to everybody at home uh, with the who's and the what's. Um, she is there, ultimately, Georgiou is, to tip the balance in everyone's favor. They dismiss Tyler. The two gals talk uh through the empire's options isn't tyler a liability isn't the baby Giorgio says weakness must be addressed and she's there to protect the empire there is no choice even though we don't fully know what the choice is upon first viewing in engineering tilly is sorry for not telling saru uh he's sorry as well but burnham's insight here is the solution and they're going to get her back in the ctp what about Pike? Well, he's not in the rest of this episode, and Saru's not familiar with his sense of humor, but he likes Tilly. So, of course, she'll be back in the CTP. Um, and Stamets here is ready to take what is identified as a eukaryotic organism, a fungus, Matt, a multicellular one at that. But wait, everybody who's around the spore drive uh, gets inoculated. Oh, that's because this has developed resistance like a bacteria. Also, it's from the Terran universe and fell on Tilly's shoulder in the uh, season one finale. 
Pete, I won't take a victory lap as having pointed out in the season one finale podcast that the green spore was going to be a thing and not, as some people suggested, a flourish on the screen. Uh, <laughs> instead, uh, there's there's questions here. Is what's going on brain manipulation done by this hitchhiker? Uh, Tilly wants it out. And really quickly, probably because Stamets knows it's the latter portions of the episode, so let's get a move on here. Uh, he takes out the the device that uh, had, had used the asteroid piece in the last episode. He says this might hurt. He he uses the energy on her. She writhes in pain. They pull it out, Pete, just like in the preview. Another moment that was yeah. shown in the summer. But good news, as it starts to get away, it quickly gets quarantined. I love the physicality of it's kind of floating. They swimming through the air. <laughs> Then the then the the static shield goes up and it runs into it like it's a a glass wall in a fish tank and uh, hooray all around the mystery of the green spore solved after three episodes. Good old quarantine protocol Alpha Omega. Am I right? On Kronos here in the High Council chambers, Laurel laments that she had a child that Valk was the father that he was made um, human, but she kept him on as the torchbearer, you know, to honor Valk. But she can no longer even say his name. And I loved how the subtitles, uh, the language spoken in Klingon, switches over. Uh, the English subtitles suddenly turned, at least for one, into Klingon, which was a really nice touch. Uh, such was this dishonor brought uh, by Evoke. He was secretly in communication with the Federation. He told them they are disunited and weak. And this breach in loyalty, Matt, results in, hang on, let me hold it up here, the loss of his head. A shocking moment, well captured on the camera there. Um she then throws his head into the fire. Um, she spins the tale that Kolshaw's life was given for the Empire. Uh, and uh, that there was another death, Pete, that of the baby killed. We then see the baby's head, which, uh. the, <laughs> Pete, here's how you know that uh, director Olatunde Unsunsami is a smart guy. You can see it's the head. A, by an establishing shot where I think it's done maybe overhead, in fact, no pun intended, but it's kind of like, you know what it is. It's made clear through dialogue and on screen. And then a little bit later in the scene when she has it, the camera just lets it come into the corner of the screen then goes back to her. Clearly, there was discussion how much, you know, in the world of the show, how much actual dead baby head there should be and they wanted to minimize it but also have people clear as to what's going on if i um, don't see this for sale either online or at a convention somebody has missed an opportunity wow that is a bold statement there oh come on i mean we'll we will see this someplace somebody's going to put this out there <laughs> and Maybe. someone will buy it yeah okay Certainly. I mean, if there's $300 leather jackets made in the style of uh, that, which Hugh Jackman wore in the X-Men movies, uh, sure. Um, 
but uh, she says that uh, she will not bear any more children. She will bear the family of the Empire. She needs a fiercer title. From this point forth, she may be called, in a line that didn't exactly land for me, Mother! I disagree, and there's only one reason that's not the title of the episode, but we'll talk about that later in the podcast, Matt. With that, with the embers of the volcano and the screams heard in Stovacor floating upward, we find a Federation-style ship. It's fold-out nacelles, its reflective surface, Matt. Suddenly, we're in a multi-deck command center, not quite a bridge. Not and... a redress of the Sanjo Bridge <laughs> in any way. They, they in no way took out the middle part and added a sub-basement. And Georgiou is there with Tyler. Um, that This is uh, not your run-of-the-mill Federation espionage that they had the head synthesized down to their neural mapping and genetic codes. Um Section 31, this canonically, Matt, the the first time it's spoken in the series, yes, there was a deleted scene, but it was a deleted scene. Uh, so when we meet Leland in a moment, it's also the first time we're formally meeting him. Because um, Tyler, Matt, he's heard tell of a black badge, but never seen one because he got to the discovery after that episode where we saw one on a guard. Um, I would also like to say retroactively, it makes the brief appearance of the black badge guards who then seem to disappear. It just kind of makes it all work. It all comes together in a way that shows Pete Star Trek is going to be okay. Um, but we get the big, as you said, Pete, the big reveal of this, this new bridge, the black, black badge ship. Um, the ship has taken Tyler and the baby and, uh, Giorgio to Boreth where the boy will be a monk. Pete, did you know this is the fourth episode of Star Trek to mention Boreth? Yes, I do. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, the boy's going to be raised there with these devout followers of Kirlish. No one leaves. No one gets in. The parents will never know him, but he will be safe. It's what Lorel wanted. And we may never see him again, or will we, will we, theories in a bit. Um, we know, Pete, that the boy now has a future. Tyler is headed somewhere more vague. Perhaps he should stay on the ship. After all, Section 31 is for misfits. Pete, I feel like I could see a poster that says <laughs> Section 31 is for misfits. The freaks um, are more fun. They are. Uh, the ship is then somewhat anticlimactically for Star Trek Discovery that also spends time on the Klingon homeworld. The ship has taken the warp. Giorgio notes he's in to end the episode. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. It's hot and heavy. Who tops the list? That would be May. It's... It's a weird thing, Pete. I thought that this would be a larger storyline, a longer storyline. I'm okay with what it has been, though. And I like the little arc that she's given where there really is malice shown, even though the character remains smiley and upbeat. Um, and plus, there's no question that there's this increasingly debilitating effect on 
uh, on Tilly. I guess the question is, though, has May gotten what she wanted, which was to meet Stamets? What was played in the previous episode as something more mischievous, truly, like you said, becomes malicious, becomes impactful in this episode. I'm glad they didn't tease this out longer. Um, I saw somebody who pointed out, well, it was really irresponsible that May had this happening and didn't report it to anybody. Uh, hey, guess what? She did it in this episode when she was truly in crisis and you know what? It's been dealt with, but we're not done with it just yet. And also, I mean, to be fair, she's newly minted out of the academy. She's barely an ensign. She's just started this command training program. We've seen Pete in her short trek, how she did not grow up with a lot of, um, a lot of support at home. Clearly she's somebody who's a little, unsure of herself um and frankly has good reason to be so i mean you know yes she's super smart but here she is lowest rung on the totem pole in the entire ship in that she's an ensign and that's how the rank system works and probably um any other ensigns have spent more time out there right i mean she 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 just got out of the academy right like at the end of the last uh, end of the last season so i think her her naivete is what you can expect out of an ensign. If this was Captain Tilly or Admiral Tilly, yes, you should speak up right away. But to me, it's in line with a character like this and this character. Certainly more nefarious of a threat is Kolsha of House Corps. I mean, what can you say other than Ken Mitchell is fantastic in the role. He's over the top in all the right ways, even down to some of the hand movements. It's what we remember from, from Cole it's delivered a bit differently here with the father and it's just a it's wonderful to see him there and i think it's also a good reminder of what we so often see anytime that there's a story on the klingon homeworld we have fire and fury going on up at these upper echelons of the klingon government and you know this is this is no uh, no different here um and then for him to you know be be ready to kill people or hurt a baby and things like that it's clear he's a threat he's kenneth mitchell just eats it up it's exactly what you want from this character you can't look away when we watch how he goes about this really shakespearean type of drama how long has shakespeare been associated with stuff that goes on in the Klingon empire, Matt, since what the 1990s? <laughs> well, I mean, since Shakespeare was writing all that stuff in the original Klingon, <laughs> um, speaking of the Klingon perspective, we get a little here with them viewing the red signal, perhaps differently than Starfleet has. Uh, I mean, I, I just thought it was interesting that to them, it was to them. It had, it had, meaning that that our level-headed scientist explorers have not uh, looked into yeah and then let's talk georgiou matt does she belong on our list here i mean look she saves the day with characters that we like so that's nice and she's a strong female character which is fantastic 
and you know the lion freaks have more fun and all that it's all a great presentation let me just pump the brakes ever so slightly to just objectively say pete the federation by way of section 31 is now involved with maybe not regime toppling or regime change but in re- regime maintenance that's a little scary i mean shouldn't cling on problems be cling on problems and don't get me wrong i understand the notion of laurel is the only person holding together the klingon empire at this point and i get that we now have all the future of star trek where it is a basically cohesive empire that basically stays on its side of the pond and peace is basically kept aside from cold wars you know cold battles here and there um so i know where it's headed in terms of being a good thing but we've had a good product out of a bad thing which is getting involved in somebody else's politics i mean it's like there she is she's on klingon facebook trying to keep things away that uh that uh (laughs) mother federation (laughs) wants to keep it uh was everybody on that as of yet unnamed on your screen um starship there matt were they really uh running bots on uh on chronos facebook uh you know uh, fake news that you know colshaw was really uh killed by um you know somebody else it, it it could be really fascinating to see those parallels but seriously what michelle yo does in this episode in this role there's a reason star trek continues to bring her back and we're going to get a whole lot more of her the affectations given the dialogue that she has when she's you know denying that she's the emperor you have me confused with someone else and the the deadpan of that the look she gives the cooing baby when um tyler is not looking and then straightens it out um my appetite is so wet for her show. I really hope they play her as an anti-hero um, in uh, in the show that we're going to get from uh, new showrunners, um, Bowie Kim and Erica Lippold. We also get the line there from Giorgio that uh, when she had children, this is why she gave them away for others to raise, mm-hmm. uh, which – Pete, I certainly don't want to bring a, a flawed gender perspective to or, or tell mothers how to run things. Personally, I think there is some merit on, I don't know, a mother who plans to have a child and plans to keep the child, you know, maybe playing a role in raising the child. So to me, there's a little villainy there that Giorgio was like, sweet, a kid, your right. problem now, I'm going to go fly my giant palace ship. And then let's talk about Leland, Matt, the subject of that deleted scene from season one, uh, handing the black badge over to Georgiou, recruiting her and now telling this woman she needs to work on her recruiting speech um, and basically getting uh, side handed and side eyed right off the stage. Well, I must confess, Pete, I definitely watched that deleted scene way back when. I I had not recognized him from it, so thank you for reminding me and I dare say some people in the audience. Um, It has all the setup of setting up this show, which is to come. And I do roll my eyes a little bit that we end, as I said before, that we end Star Trek Discovery not on the, the Discovery 
nor with a former Discovery crewmate like IE Tyler on Kronos. But I think it's only because I know that there's this show coming and I know that it's doing a little setup for what, you know, whether it's the future uh, adventures this season of the SS Black Badge or, you know, the next time we hear from them, is it the show? Is it a short track? Is it, you know, whatever it is. Um, I think that's only if you know it's coming. If you just view the story objectively, it's a delicious way to end. I mean, to be fair, Tyler's in the scene, but it's a delicious way to end with, hey, this is a brand new mix and who knows when it'll pop up again. Well, Pete, now we have a long-range sensor scan looking ahead. First one up here with 11 episodes to go. Tyler is seemingly done on Kronos. How much more will we get of him? Uh, how about these pre-spinoff tales of secret agent Giorgio? Uh, how about Pete? How much future for Laurel, whose driving force, Mary Chivo, still does not get a place in the main credits? Listen, can we get all of them every week if only there was enough story to go around but the way that they've sprinkled them in i mean the advertisements keep saying star trek is back and they're using uh media outlets saying that well it's 100 percent correct and this bigger ensemble cast than we're really used to when you bring in mia kirshner and then you bring in uh, we haven't even had Ethan Peck yet, Matt, because, you know, what I thought we'd wind up doing with this season would be having another segment on the show called Where's Spock? We haven't even needed to do that. There's been so much story. It's been at a breakneck pace. Um, you know, this is the Game of Thrones we've been promised in the Star Trek universe. Where in the galaxy is the murder suspect Spock? Um, Pete, another bit for the old long range sensors here. Will the son of Laurel and Voke become the albino scourge of the Klingon establishment and en enemy of Kor, Koloth, Kang and the Dax symbiont as shown in Deep Space Nine? That we dropped him off at Boreth, which Worf will later visit, um, where we have the, uh, the clone of Kalish in the next generation that later on he will revisit uh, um, on Deep Space Nine in the episode The Way of the Warrior and uh, has also been depicted on view screens uh, in Deep Space Nine. Um, I thought a really great way to tag that back. The episode title, Matt, Point of Light, is actually an allusion to um, the scriptures in, uh, in, in the, the way of Kalesh so that they've managed to use that, I think was such, uh, an interesting way to go. Pete, here's a challenging question for you. Spock murderer and never to return to the star service. Of course not. If, if only Matt, we have seen images of a bearded Spock in psychiatric custody, uh, suddenly nerve pinching people in the room. I mean, we, we could have predicted this stuff again, based on what's already out there in their promotion. Um, but 
as I talk all the time, when it talks, when we come to talk about narrative, it's not the what, but the how. And doesn't seem like we're getting Spock next episode lines up as we expect when they had that little break and had to dis- dismiss the two former showrunners. We're going to get them somewhere. Episode five, six, seven. Pete, this is not on my list, but do Berg and Harberts retain executive producer credit in the post firing episodes? Because I, I think that was floated. That like, well, they will definitely keep credit for what they did. So will we see the two hands almost touching the two best friends who go all the way back 10 years? Uh, will we see them struck from the credits? Definitively, I couldn't tell you. I've not seen that far. Um, to me, it's kind of like who was the uh, the first showrunner of The Walking Dead who retains that title who left Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont. It, it feels a little bit like that situation. We'll we'll just have to wait and see. But then again, you know, they were they were unkind and you know rightfully stripped of that. So we'll just have to see. I must confess, for Walking Dead, um, I know Darabont has retained the developed by, which would have been created, but it was you know not an original thing. Uh, I wonder if maybe they get a similar place of unpride which is like you know oh which is this lower credit but pete who cares it's those hollywood bigwigs back to the show what did burnham do to push kid spock away it's a really meaty question you know i was going to propose for this segment did we uh you know sit here and rattle off potential vulcan uh unniceties that she could have hurled his way whatever it is to, to build, to form this deep a rift between the two of them had to be really deliberately insensitive. I continue to be interested with the notion that I know we discussed a bit last week, this idea of maybe this show somehow doing a, a remake scene of stuff we've already uh seen in prior star trek i think last week i had proposed it as maybe some of the pike stuff this had me wondering as we really are hammering home on something terrible that happened in spock's past you know do we get a live action restaging now with burnham inserted maybe somehow of some of the elements from um from the animated series um i'm not necessarily necessarily saying shot for shot i don't know how you deal with the fact of the strange stranger who comes and who actually is older spock like I, maybe it's not worth the trouble but do we get to see uh ichaya the pet do we see oh gosh i hope so i just rewatched uh journey to babel um uh from the original series and the scene with mccoy teasing spock about the Salat. um i so hope we're heading there i mean you know did burnham poison each oh, eye, god. I, don't, don't, oh my god that i feel like there's story it's, potential it's there with opportunity absolutely i you know or or did something you know maybe maybe lord it maybe uh you know um made it run away with her kidnapped it something you know i i think could be really really not only interesting but delicious to watch 
I think particularly with the animated series, you know, I, I know the standard line, you know, from the nineties is none of the animated series uh, counts except for yesteryear. Uh, it's all Star I Trek. Like, it all counts. <laughs> well, I, I feel like there's enough play. It would be different if it was like, Hey, we're going to like, as I had proposed last week, Hey, we're going to go back and reshoot stuff from the cage with this new Pike. You know, okay. I think that's maybe a little bit more sacred ground to, to whatever degree. I think if it was like, Hey, we're going to restage, portions of that episode and insert burnham but wait burnham wasn't in the animated episode and if the answer is just yep she's not in the animated episode she's in the five minutes of new footage that we shot uh, you know it's the same as uh why on enterprise they have enterprise the show they have you know uh uh you know like blinky pre ipad pads um palm they have palm pilots but they didn't have that on the on the original show like don't know what to tell you, but Pete, what can you tell us about what's on your sensor grid? Tilly's mom received another post. That's why she moved away from the middle school where May was. Is Tilly's mother in Starfleet? Pete, I had certainly not had the impression ever that Tilly's mother was in Starfleet. Perhaps the posting was a diplomatic one. Uh, I mean, perhaps it was Earth. I know there's not a need for a military in the future. Maybe it was you know, Earth security type stuff. Maybe it was a, a scientific posting or a research posting. Uh, maybe they chose the word posting to keep it intentionally vague, but still have an excuse for a kid to need to move after six months. The iconic Klingon D7 battlecruiser is seen uh, via hologram, via hollow plan in this episode, Matt. And the torchbearer has helped to design it, and he's put in um, uh, charge of its production. Now that the torchbearer is gone, whoever will oversee such production on an iconic starship that we will see four years and years later? I I don't know, but I hope that they continue to return to the d7 in some way i mean pete if they're looking for excuses for more short treks which they've said that they are um i mean you want to give me 15 minutes of this guy or that gal developing it uh over time the building of it the launching of the first one whatever it is i say bring it on that's exactly why short treks exist for these kind of incremental stories there was no mention of the bombs on Kronos, and I kind of wonder why. How could Kolsha attempt to take control of the Empire from Lorel and she not say, but I have my finger on the trigger here that will destroy us all? I think that that was such a powerful story out it at the gave end it of... to us in the previously which you like to point out yeah um who made the previously though was it somebody who's like oh man today i got to do a recap for this show okay tomorrow i'm on to you know whatever ncis's recap um i i have never loved the bomb as a story solution uh in part because it was literally the 13th hour I mean, ships were closer to Earth than the moon is to the Earth, uh, ready to attack and destroy this planet. And it's the it's the magic story fix, which I buy. Don't get me wrong. It was well presented. But it becomes one of these things of, you know, 
it Pete, what you're asking is why didn't Superman swoop in again and the story's not giving <laughs> us kryptonite and the story's not giving us but Superman is off world or Superman is helping with the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever. It's just I think this is the legacy of having had such a radical solution that wraps up the war, that wraps up uh, the the ascent of Laurel from deck commander to chancellor, um, that sets in place the modern uh, cohesive Klingon Empire. All of that done in a couple of scenes. This is some of the spillback after the fact of. Uh, I don't know why they didn't mention it because it'll solve every discussion ever, which is, oh, if I don't put in my code, <laughs> then uh, there's now a, no dramatic whatever because it's it's set where if I don't do it every 24 hours or every rotation, then kablooey. Eh, I think it's, it is what it is. Amanda has stolen Spock's files. Captain Vela points out that they are missing. The camera goes, of course, to her. She leaves ready to find Spock. Is she in hot water, Matt? She with a husband who is an ambassador. I read that line as a genuine gee whiz. We don't know how we lost it. I mean, let's not forget, Pete, this is uh, Starfleet. This is the Federation. This is probably you know on starbase five probably no one locks their doors <laughs> metaphorically if not literally so to me it kind of was like i mean look i'm sure they have i'm sure if you want to really poke holes in it do they have security footage and things like that all right well she thought a way around it but um i don't think we're gonna have a story that goes after her as as the the thief i think it's, there's there's your short track matt Amanda, Amanda Grayson, diplomatic privilege that that's the short trek. Put me on that short trek. I will write the heck out of that. I think she really uh, slinked around that got that. I think the people, of course, that being section 31, I think later in this season, uh, we're going to see that they pinpoint the loss of those files back to her. Ooh, fun, fun, fun. The Klingon stained glass, Matt. Did you catch a glimpse of it? A little. That was like in the doors separating the nursery from the nursery antechamber. Yeah. Um, a lot of red on it. We've seen stained glasses uh, with red before in a previous episode. Possible connection here with the Red Angel and this baby being found? Well, I like that as a theory because we get, of course, the differing interpretations I've mentioned before as to the red signals. So the notion that this is some sort of um, or that this prior to the, the, the red signals appearing, that this was still a cross-cultural, cross-species touchstone. I like that. I just I worry about it being overplayed. You know, you had mentioned the theory uh, in the last couple episodes. Maybe this somehow is Culber through the the spore waves or whatever. You Hold know. that thought. We're going back to it in a minute. Okay. Well, I guess just then. I just I guess the point just being, can there be this literally galactic event which just so happens to tie in not only to our heroes most directly but also it's a cultural keystone or cultural component in klingon and for the klingon people etc cetera, etc cetera. 
I worry that it would be slightly overplayed. Coming from a medical family, Matt, my father, uh, an OBGYN of uh, four decades, having brought you into the world in addition to my wife, true story, um, and my mother, a labor and delivery nurse of many, many years, how my parents met, um, I can tell you that the medical symbol of a caduceus was omnipresent in my home. That, of course, the wings with a staff down the middle uh, encircled by snakes. I'm pretty confident, given all the Red Angel drawings, that that's a very heavy illusion, if not connection. Well, certainly the wing portion uh, bears witness to that and also kind of the vertical nature. It'll be interesting to see how far they take it. I mean, are you proposing perhaps this is something that goes back thousands of years that no, in Star no, Trek? That, the, this okay. is, this, that this is Culber's symbol, that this connected to medicine, uh, that he's he's fixing the ills of the universe, that he's planting these seeds, that he's doing what he can to, uh, you know, get people to where they have the greatest need. What is May? What was May grooming Tilly for? That I think is where we are headed in the aftermath. Now that the now that the thing is out, um, I think that most. Let me, let me put it this way: Tilly is the one who puts forth the theory that she was being groomed. Maybe it was merely just to be groomed to find that captain. Oh, look, Tilly's in some captain training thing. Get to the captain. Wait, this is the wrong captain. I think the goal always was to get. Well, of course, this isn't a groundbreaking thing. The goal was to get to Stamets. Um, of course, May is not happy with where she is at now. Um, clearly, the this fungal organism could better interact with the, uh, the, the humans and uh, uh, other limbed beings, other creatures on board through Tilly. But I think ultimately we are headed for this, uh, you know, we are headed for some sort of spore-based story here. And honestly, I feel like that's, you know, it still is the best path to get Culber back, even though I hear what you're saying with the Red Angel. I see the most direct path that, that Colber or Colber copy is still there in, in spore land and she will help facilitate it. So Georgiou who corrects Tyler that she is not the emperor of the Terran universe instead our prime Philippa Georgiou says to Laurel that she had a baby of her own that she needed somebody else to take care of because she never got anything done. So it begs the question did Prime Georgiou actually have a child? And we've not explored this yet. Did the Terran Emperor have a child or was that Michael Burnham? Wow, that is a lot to consider there. Um, I guess first question is this. How much does Laurel know about the Mirror Georgiou? Probably next to nothing, um, given that she wasn't in on a lot of those discussions. Um, and if anything, it would be dangerous for all involved, uh, particularly Section 31 and Georgiou, if, if she did know. Um, I will then take that as, as this Georgiou is speaking about the, about the um, 
Prime universe, but then I feel like that leads to other questions. Maybe Pete, the best answer, Occam's Razor here, the one of uh, easiest, uh, the easiest path. Maybe she was speaking about Burnham. If so, it was a little obtuse. And a little cheeky at that, but certainly in line with the character. And then lastly, Leland refers to Section 31 control rather than command or high command or anything like that. Really interesting verbiage. And will we see Section 31 control? I mean, if we don't in this season and in this series, I would expect that we do in the spinoff show. Um, part of what is so interesting about Section 31 as a concept is that it is obviously antithetical to kind of the purity of the Gene Roddenberry vision of the future, but also it's kind of this reminder that for as pleasant as everything is for 99.99999% of the people living in the Federation, and for as much as, hey, it worked, we got there, we got all of us there, there's this asterisk where, no, not all of us got there. Some of this is underpinned by things which are uh, completely opposite to our virtues and our way of life. And if that's how the Federation runs, then it's also a reflection here of a variety of things, whether you want to say it's your politics, whether you're, you know, you want to say, Hey Pete, I love my, my iPhone of the future that does all these great things. All right. We also know that devices like that devices, like the clothing we're not devices, things like the clothing that we're wearing are not the product of the Gene Roddenberry bright future. They're the product of some pretty terrible conditions oftentimes. So I think it's a little, Section 31 is a way to remind us that we still have a ways to go here. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. Pete, let's start with uh, the Twitter poll that was run after the episode aired, streamed, whatever. What did you think of this week's uh, Star Trek Discovery? Uh, votes a bit down here, Pete. 9% said one star, oh baby. 6% said two stars, fungal. 27% said three stars logical and 58% said four stars intriguing. Well, definitely count me in that 58%. I'm super high on this episode. I think it's a series high point, if not the series high point, just sizzled on my screen. Can't wait for more. Uh, Pete, we also had some response on uh, Twitter, we had a tweet from our pal, Andre Yeager, that's at Dr. Polo1983. I'm glad that Tilly came clean about her visions. Uh, stories like that can get stale when they drag it out too long, which is kind of opposite to the perspective I had before the episode started. But I agree with Andre. He also says, uh, also Section 31, about time, yeah. Yeah, uh, Andre, who's a big supporter of Fantastic Geek, is clearly correct in both of those observations uh we also had a tweet from franco trek uh who says lots of b plots a bit unfocused pushes the story forward but damn i wanted more i don't agree as much with that tweet <laughs> <laughs> um let me put it this way pete i agreed with franco trek the first time i saw it uh we discussed off mic how i probably was also still just made angry by CBS All Access that wasn't letting me watch it on my TV. Uh, by the way, not the fault of the device because the other episodes work just fine. So it's somebody who's not doing what, I don't know. But 
Anyhow, Pete, let's hear from Annie Harrington, the wise Annie Harrington. That's at any time left, T-H-Y-M-E. Uh, she says... The implication that Burnham hasn't interacted with Spock since childhood means the whole Discovery first novel can't be canon, right? I know books aren't canon, but the writers had said that they were writing as if these were last season. Your thoughts, Pete, before we hear more from Annie. Oh, the canon discussion has to rear its head. Um, I know that they had put uh, Kirsten Beyer in charge of all that and that it all counted and now that they've undone that, I've not read the book. Matt, you've not read the book, right? I have not, no. Um, and that they've undone that after they apparently said that it counted, that's disappointing. That being said, it's on your screen. I think screen stories remain screen stories. I think book stories, because of the nature of the medium, uh, are extra and therefore not always reliable and then we know how much people read these days unfortunately all i will say on the topic is i know some of those books were written so in advance of you know like they had only just started filming or it was even just characters on the page or recently cast or whatever um i think it's unfortunate that things can't be more cohesive uh, I certainly have not kept up with every chapter and verse of. The... Maybe there's some Red Angel explanation. All I can say is go. maybe there's some retcon to it. We're not seeing just yet. It, if Star Wars can do it, where they say, "Hey, we have worked hard to have a mention of, you know, a mention of the Disney World Park in the thing in order to this right. and that," but we've just mentioned you mean, it just you enough, mean so it's Black Spire and Solo, where it gets a shout out. I mean, yeah. You know, and maybe that's the best way to do it is instead of having Burnham Spock interactions in the novel, you say, hey, avoid that. Or, hey, that's when Burnham went to singing camp for those two weeks. So we get the <laughs> or whatever it is, you sit and go like we Vulcan need to just, singing camp. Yeah, <laughs> probably just a lot of chanting. Anyhow, be back to Annie, who says, uh, I liked getting to know Amanda a little better. I yeah. couldn't tell what she was feeling when she parted with Burnham. Was she upset with her or just herself? And we talked about that a little bit there, but yeah. uh, great Amanda stuff. I'd like to see some further tension between the two of them. You know, great story comes out of conflict. To Facebook, Matt, to the Fantastic Geek Facebook page where Mary Jane Dizak, I do hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I didn't get a correction to last week, so I guess I am, writes in, um, after episode 202, has anyone used it to find an alternative answer to how our ancestors got here? Science is another way of understanding the world. In other words, frankly, I find the placing narrative emphasis on the theme of science versus religion to be an unfortunate choice on the part of the showrunners. I mean, I'm having a hard time seeing a happy resolution arriving by the end of this season. I really hope I'm wrong about that. Also, I wondered about why this episode had two storytellers and two writers in the credits, although one fellow filled both roles. As the old saying goes, too many cooks spoil the pot. Sorry for being so long. That was more than two cents worth. And I had told her not long at all and indicated the behind-the-scenes drama in the early going of production for season two, hence the story by and teleplay credits three for the first episode i know that a writing room can be so fluid where sometimes it doesn't matter 
you know, who told, if it's a comedy, you know, it doesn't matter who told the joke first. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or, or somebody writes a draft and then the room gives passes through it and it gets changed. Uh, I know even in Star Trek Discovery, there's been some concern of what was written is not what finally has made it to the screen, despite who was credited for what. So I think it's at, at best, it's one of those gray areas where it's not necessarily you know, this week's author sat alone in his study with a quilled pen. And when he was done, he delivered it and they shot it word for word. Uh, there, there's more goings on than that. Mary Jane continues, but I must agree with Fred that this episode was problematic. When Tilly was knocked cold by the small chunk of the asteroid, I didn't wonder so much why she was immediately bleeding, but why the asteroid itself remained lodged in the shuttle bay instead of sinking all the way through the ship. If the two small pieces she cut off wreaked such havoc, wouldn't a much larger one be that much more destructive? She continues, great cast again, guys. Love the pic you posted of the away team. Pike looks like he just walked out of the pages of GQ. <laughs> oh, whoa, is so graceful and much taller than I had thought. And B, she's referring to Burnham here, I imagine. I put B in my notes when, when I take them. Well, we're well acquainted with her attributes. This cast is an absolute joy, not a clunker in the lot. And Gersha Phillips' costume designs reinforce their characterizations so well. But then it hasn't gone unnoticed that Disco is a beast for the eyes uh, every way. I think she means... She might have meant every week. One more quibble when Burnham or says. Or every way. Any way you look at it, it's, it's yeah. beautiful. Uh, one more quibble when Burnham says, say my religion is science. She is not saying that she is not religious, but rather attempting to explain how science might be understood by a religious person. She goes on to ask. And like Fred, the threat from the pieces of the asteroid to the people on the planet was tiresome. No comms, no transporter, no shuttle. In fact, Stamets warns that the ionized carbon exhaust from the shuttle will accelerate the particle's arrival. But that seems to be an immaterial consideration since they barely have time to do anything at all. And what was the problem? Reese reports on ionizing radiation in the upper atmosphere, which Detmer refers to as radioactive particles in the outer ring, which when they uh, reach the upper atmosphere will cause an extinction level event, which as a nuclear winter is irreversible. In other words, many different scenarios being described. Pete, I think Mary Jane here is catching the show uh I'll say fibbing. It's not quite as strong as that, but the show is throwing a lot of techno babble, but unfortunately it's techno babble that we can identify. Like we know what a nuclear winter is. We know what radiation particles in the atmosphere could be separate from a nuclear winter and what it, that would do to the sunlight, you know, things of that sort. So I think kind of she's, she's caught the show by its tail and said, aha, some of this stuff, I know what it is as opposed to the properties of dilithium a pretend thing, how phasers should work. Phasers are not lasers. You know, she's she's catching the show on some truthy truthfulness. JT Atkins wrote into our post on Facebook about setting a course for thoughtful Star Trek discovery with Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek. Logical, flawlessly logical. Ooh, well, thank you for those kind words there. That's... Uh... That is our strive, Pete, to be we – we try to be our Vulcan best when we are on the podcast. 
Pete, with that, let's open hailing frequencies. Unfortunately, Pete, this is audio only. It's not It's not uh, on the vid screen. It's not via holograph. We're not quite there yet. But let's hear from our pal, Fred in the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 3. First off, last podcast, there was some discussion about religion. Religion in the 23rd century and religion nowadays. And you, Pete, did some research. 89 to 90% of Americans, apologies, Fred, this is the fastest thing I could find in a couple of seconds, but about uh, close to 90% of Americans believe in God or higher power or spiritual force, that kind of thing. So I think it's quite high, regardless of where you're worshiping or if you worship at all or, or whatever that might be. Now, imagine a future where that number is flipped around, where it's 90%, 95% or more who have just abandoned religion. And again, this might kind of feel like a slightly foreign topic, I think, to a lot of people who at the very least don't want to, you know, don't want to say, well, you know, in Star Trek, there is no God. Right. In Star Trek, people don't believe in God um, in, in a religious sense at all. That's how it is. So I kind of, as kind of difficult as it was, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not very active in my faith, but I, I certainly was a bit shocked. You know, hey, Burnham doesn't believe in in any of that stuff. Well, that's status quo for most 23rd century folks. Well, I looked it up for the Netherlands. Since 2017, more than 50% is non-believer, 51%. So what about your ideas then about the Netherlands? You were already a little bit shocked. Well... This is the Netherlands. What do you think about that, then? An hedonistic society or on the way to the future? Okay, other topic. Let's get into this episode. First off, I want to talk about angels. I posted screenshots from episode one, two, and three as a comparison on the Facebook page. Of course, we see the angels in Fox's medical file. Obviously, as Amanda tells us, he draw them all in himself. But if we look at those pictures on the screen, there is one, for instance, with a circle around it. And if we then go back to the stained glass window in the church of last episode, we see an angel without wings, but with a circle around it. But we also see in one of these drawings of Spock, where the angel does have wings, but also red sparks around it. The same red sparks are seen on the stained glass in the church. If we look in this episode, there is several stained glass windows on the Klingon world. So there are two major pieces of stained glass. The one is the door towards the room in which is the baby. And the second one is the stained glass window behind the baby. And if you look at the door, I have the idea I see a head there with two horns on it, like a devil. And if you compare that, for instance, to the first vision that Michael had of the angel on the asteroid, it's not just an angel, but there were also two horns on it. So in that sense, I always doubt it, is it an angel or a devil? And we see that, if you want to see it, on the door of this Klingon room. And if you then go into this room and you see the crib of the baby, Behind it, there is a stained glass window. It's not so clear, but on the side, you clearly see wings. So what does all this mean? 
have their cling on some kind of tradition or something something in their belief that's also similar to for instance these people on Tyrolysium, so the world where they lived and where they had this church. I liked this episode. I really loved the Spock childhood story and how, after so many years, Amanda and Michael confessed to each other what they did wrong in Spock's upbringing. Although Michael did not reveal what it was exactly what she did to Spock. Because of this, this episode is perhaps too soft for some fans. I really like Mia Kirsner as an actress. She plays the role of Amanda beautifully here. One other topic I want to address is this holographic telecommunication between Burnham and Ash Tyler. In the beginning, we see just Burnham in her room with a holographic projection of Tyler. And then we switch and we see a holographic projection of Burnham on Kronos. And we see a complete Kronos surrounding. And then later we see half Burnham's room and half Kronos. And of course this gives a clearer picture and it's nice to look at. But it's not a real a split image in the sense of with a, with, a, with a line in between. And I think it was a bit confusing. I, I thought, does this holographic projection now take not only the person but a lot of the surrounding with it? So... Could have been done clearer. was a bit confusing now. It's very nice to have all kinds of races on the bridge. But now there are two guys, and in the last episode I think one, with these very big fishy heads. Do you know which species this is? I tried to find it, but I didn't succeed. I had some problems with the character of May. She sounds all the time a bit childish and high-pitched voice. And I don't know if the actress always has this kind of voice. Or that it was on purpose and that she had to play it like this. And that although she is an adult, it's partly the memory of Tilly from her youth. I found it a little, now let's say, distracting at least. Probably everybody is happy that the Klingons are starting to getting their hairs back. I really wonder if this is a first step in a process towards a more, let's say, Klingon as we know it. Or that it is just this little step and, and, and this is it. Getting Georgiou back and in a cool setting with Section 31, I really liked it. There were a lot of nice shots in this uh, episode, nice lighting. But because I make screenshots for myself and sometimes for blog posts of other podcasts, I really noticed that there is a lot, a lot of symmetry, which... Gives very nice pictures though, but if you make an inventory of them, every inside of a ship or other situations, it's very often uh, symmetrical. And and last, what I found very funny is that when they are doing the half marathon in the ship, you see in the corridors, you see some lighting on the walls that is giving the direction. When they are finishing, you also see a sign, finish. So they use the, well, whatever there is in the cor in the corridors there for signaling or for whatever, uh, for this marathon. A very nice eye for detail there. Okay, that was all for now. Greetings, Fred from the Netherlands. 
Pete Fred mentions the hedonistic future, or at least as a possibility. I guess that's what Riza is for, right? To go do what you want to do. <laughs> Apparently the Netherlands. Uh, I am a little bit shocked there, but I, again, I guess it's a future that's not, again, that God hasn't come up in our Star Trek, uh, which chronologically happens in the future with Kirk and McCoy and what does God need with a starship and all that. Uh, Fred also mentioning these kind of large bulbous headed aliens, uh, according to memory alpha, this on the USS discovery personnel page, uh, there's not an official alien species for them. They're listed as alien sciences officer and alien bridge officer. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a real world note that Glenn Hetrick, who's the uh, department head of prosthetics, uh, has named the officer Osnullis, which Pete, you did a little, uh, Latin research on yes oz is latin for mouth and nullis would mean no so the character is known as no mouth uh fred also mentioned that use of the wall uh lighting and signage during the marathon to, to use that corridor signage there uh to me pete i felt like this was a modern update of a rarely used tng tool i know when Riker first goes on the enterprise he asks a, a pretty lady which way to get to somewhere uh, and she says, oh, the Galaxy-class ships do a thing, and it lights up and says, walk this way, and there's lights to follow until he gets to wherever he's getting to. I want to say maybe the holodeck where he's going to meet Data, but it has been a little while. Matt, one other bit of feedback. Uh, we got a one-star and a two-star rating on iTunes. So for some uh, drive-by cowards who just wanted to uh, check a little thing and not actually write a review to say why it's uh, one star or two stars, thus knocking our five-star rating down to four and a half. So as has happened to us before, I'm going to enlist the Fantastic Geek Nation, nay, Galaxy, Matt, when we talk about uh, Star Trek Discovery. So perhaps consider going on to iTunes and one, at least clicking a rating, bump us up from that four and a half back to five stars. And two, to write an actual review of words as our listeners, real listeners, can read and write. Pete, the love, the real love shown on iTunes. Always appreciated. Always a great way to help us get the podcast out to more listeners and a great way for listeners to give back. We, of course, get supported in another way. We have people who go to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, help make sure that all our bleeps and our bloops make it through the subspace network to be heard on your LCARS systems throughout the entire fleet. So, Pete, what would you like to say on that topic? Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts of levels to pick from there. Really could not do this without you. So very true, Pete. Of course, the best treat is being able to talk to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E -E 10,335 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, on Instagram, on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word. Like it today. Be like Mary Jane. Be like JT. Be like, if you can even attempt to be like, Fred. 
Well, Pete, as we wrap up this, our longest Discovery podcast ever, we're going to be back next Saturday to do it all again after episode 204. So with that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Your eyes are dripping. Thank you.